and welcome back to yet another episode of Lay Film. My name is Kevin, one of the co-hosts, and I am joined today by my other co-host, Patrick. Mm-hmm. And for those of you returning once again to the wonderful town of Twin Peaks, we'd like to, you know, express our appreciation for you following us during this journey. Uh, today we will be discussing episode six entitled Realization Time. And we start off, you know, right after the the ending sequence from episode five, where Special Agent Cooper returns from a very, very eventful day, running on probably two, three hours sleep max. Uh, he comes back to the hotel room at the Great Northern to suspect that somebody is waiting to get the jump on him. And then who is it other than Audrey? And we start off in this episode where, of course, Audrey is in Agent Cooper's bed in a very vulnerable state, awaiting his return. And we have this very heartfelt conversation, a much needed conversation between the two to set up some much needed boundaries. Uh, Pat, what were like some of your initial impressions from this episode? Uh, it's a great example of having your cake and eating it too where we last end with a very scandalous cliffhanger and it's up to the audience's American minds which means sick and perverted probably to assume (laughs) the worst and then at the start of this episode we're brought back to the reality of Twin Peaks and like no it's not happening Uh, he's a positive figure And uh, it's a much needed, refreshing scene to kind of side skirt the more. It's a good word to say. The the push, they're pushing the boundary kind of from the start with this whole relationship in a way. And this is a good step back from the line to safely say, like, look, you you may think we're going to cross it. I'm sure a portion of the audiences wants us to cross it, cross it. But uh, yeah, we're not doing that. And it's a very much it's a needed like reassurance for people in the audience like me. who are like, maybe someday they could be an item, but not currently. At all, especially with how it would affect my perception of certain characters. I definitely agree. It, it seems like If this were a normal soap opera, it would really lean even further into this dynamic that they've been building up from the start, where you have this outside figure coming in to save the day, so to speak, and then you have this other more, uh, this darker figure who is uh, sort of a wild card and is vying for, you know, the affection of this other person. Um, I, I definitely agree with you, Pat. I, it, it seems like at a distance, they both have characteristics that make for a very complementary friendship together. Um, Audrey sort of gets Cooper to 
break out of the break out of this uh, chipper ex exterior that he usually has and has like more heart to heart and vulnerability uh, at play in the conversations. And Cooper sort of provides this very uh, light oriented figure in a very dark world that Audrey exists in. And as friends, they are excellent together. And I, I'm very glad that they finally put the, you know, they, they put this, this dynamic to rest. Um, and yeah, it was a very heartfelt scene. Um, Cooper saying something along the lines of what I want and what I need are two different things. And, and sort of like, he, he frames it in a way where he's where he's doing it from a side of conviction where he has to like uphold these sort of uh, civic duties and that he sort of takes his role very professionally and doesn't want to influence or like intervene in everyday life uh, while also like creating a stir and I don't know I all I'm gonna say is I love Cooper <laughs> Cooper is a godsend <laughs> And yeah, that goes back to the, like the my thing of like maybe down the line. He's like, uh, there's 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 kind of it's not a screwball pairing, but there's a there's a there's a chemistry, there's a dynamic between the two of them. And that line of like what I want, what I need, it's like oh, there's there's the dynamic between the two characters, and the potential in that. Like I took that like that that could be the need, but what he wants is to be, uh, FBI agent. Cooper, who's going to solve the case and do the right thing and is a bastion and beast, a, a beacon of light. And that's what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. It's a great dynamic, really. Yeah, that, that line like summarizes the whole relationship between the two characters from his perspective. I, like, I, how, how does Cooper re react to the relationship and the, the yes or the no factor of it? Of Could it happen? Could it not happen? Like, there's his answer. I I also really enjoyed, like, going off of what you just said, how a few lines later, Cooper has the sort of um, perspective and the experience to recognize as, like, a, a figure of, like, authority as well as somebody who has just been through a lot of, uh, you know, more, more events in their life. Um, he says to Audrey, but what you need right now more than anything else is a friend. Um, is sort of like, you know, be there for this person who is feeling in a very fragile and emotionally vulnerable state. Uh, somebody who won't take advantage of, of this person. Um, and I found that to be very uplifting and endearing. Um, and also gave me a, a bit more faith <laughs> in humanity. After seeing just like this small scene, it's like, oh, you're telling me that like somebody is capable of, you know, having a lot of like discipline and also, you know, wanting the best for people. Like that's such a, it's such a great uh, archetype as well as just a great, just way to showcase how to like solve these situations for whenever anyone runs into them. Yeah, great scene. And then after that scene, we end up at the sheriff's station and we see this 
continued plot line going on between Andy and Lucy. Lucy's still giving him the cold shoulder, but we finally get some insight on the private life of Lucy. Uh, We get the notion that she is pregnant and it's sort of like creating this isolation that she's existing in, as well as, you know, putting a a bit of distance between herself and Andy. Uh, And it's sort of harming the both of them in the process. Creating a bit of miscommunication, too. Cooper seems to pick up on it when he comes in after the news. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's like blowing the whistle. (laughs) He like side eyes and walks by when she's like, I'm much better today. Thanks. He just kind of like watch, keeps walking, but like looks at back for a second. And then he like c- continues his stride. I, I like Cooper a lot because he knows how to pick up on a, a lot of or he does like a lot of emotional reading on people, but also knows when to give people space rather than prying. And I feel like this is just a clear example of that. And of course, like we are then reintroduced to Waldo, the the talking bird. I forget the the specific breed it is, but uh, I love how serious uh, Doc Hayward and Truman are taking this situation where they're just trying to get Waldo to be back at 100% again. Like clearly this this bird has been through a lot of uh, trying experiences and you know, they've starved and dehydrated. And they're just trying to, you know, feed him, get him back up to speed, you know? Mm-hmm. And I love how Cooper's just, the, when when Hayward offers him to feed Waldo, he's like, nah, I don't like birds. Yeah. <laughs> A little character insight. So this episode has one of the standout scenes involving Waldo later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great setup right here. They established that uh, it's a mimic. It's a mimic. What's the word for it? Mimicry bird, maybe. Mm-hmm. A bird. It's like a parrot. It mimics people's speech, or what it hears. It's a great little setup. And then I think uh, they see the photo of the bird on Laura's shoulder. Then Cooper takes out that high tech tape recorder. Good stuff. And then we finally get some um, additional insight on the plastic that was inside of Laura's stomach. We are told that the analysis came back from, I want to say Albert, where it the in the previous episode, when they come across the cabin in the woods that belongs to Jacques Renault, they find the, the chipped uh, one-eyed Jack token. And it turns out that the plastic bit inside of Laura's stomach was the missing piece of that token. Which I didn't, I never picked up on that in my first viewing of the series. Um, One other thing too that um, I'm just now thinking about is perhaps why Cooper doesn't like birds. And if it's like even foreshadowing something, because, you know, in previous episodes we've had a few recurring motifs when it comes to birds, especially in like the daytime and nighttime and what their roles are as um, sort of like totems of Twin Peaks. 
um, you know, the owls occurring at night, you know, every, I, I, I even think that, uh, in the previous episode, the log lady, when they all arrived at her cabin, she said that they needed to go inside away from the watchful eyes of, I don't know if it was from the owls or the ravens or something like that, but I, I wonder if, you know, Cooper's aversion to birds is linked to any of, you know, what has been going on, what could be going on later on uh, in relation to the birds of Twin Peaks. I agree, for sure. And I, I like the dynamic of the raven and the owl difference. This is like maybe my reading of it. Like owls look cute, kind of. They look cool. But aren't they like mostly carnivorous? Mm hmm. Don't they eat the they look cool or whatever. They eat the woodland critters. They can pick up pets, like a small cat, kittens, all that stuff. Like They're pretty vicious. I think ravens are more uh, intelligent, first off, and second off, I think they're, uh, I think they eat insects mostly and scavenge. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, like decaying corpses, which is like more aligned with nature and like that to me as like a peaceful, like coexisting way than the direct predator, even though I still know it's nature, but there's like a, there's like a sadness in the predator catching the prey when you're like watching the Discovery Channel. So it's like a bum out moment. <laughs> and so my read of the show is that I should like ravens more than owls. That's a very, very interesting point you just made, Pat. And I definitely, you know, I got to say, I agree with that point as well. Um, I've always been more of a fan of ravens, especially in this moment compared to owls. Because um, there's, there's something like mysterious and unnerving about owls especially like in their calls at night um, and even the way that they're able to like rotate their heads around it's very it seems otherworldly like sort of like a creature of death um, that sort of stalks in the night it has like this boogeyman feel to it whereas a raven they're sort of ever present and like even when you're out in the woods, let's say for instance, like you're camping or something and you come across a raven, they'll like just watch you. And the second that you leave though, if there's any food out, they're gonna get to it. You know, they're just trying to survive. Um, but you can also like develop friendships with ravens too by offering them like metallic objects or anything like that. And if you build it up enough, then they can become familiar with you and there's like a sense of camaraderie. And that's not to say that you can't develop uh, some sort of relationship with owls too, or that they're inherently evil. But I feel, I feel my own soul aligning more with the side of the raven rather than the owl, uh, as well. <laughs> I like and, Waldo. He's kind of reminiscent of a raven. Yeah, right. He's sort of is like a, like a lower, or not a lower, but um sort of like an offshoot of it yeah, where like, you have like the colorful beak <laughs> it's just like a sweet like even just the name Waldo like it, it just seems like a sweet sweet bird 
black fur. He has a stripe, I think, maybe, or some white spot and a bright beak. Like it, it could have been a parrot. It could have been like a more colorful bird. So I, I want to say it's a stylistic choice. And then we immediately shift to a more darker tone, which I feel like this sort of thing isn't hasn't been too present in a lot of the episodes we've seen so far where something nefarious and evil is beginning to form in the daylight hours of Twin Peaks. Uh, we see Leo finally uh, finding out that Bobby and Shelly are having an affair and he is even willing to pull out a rifle and shoot Bobby in broad daylight the second he exits the house. Shelly, Shelly had shot Leo and he has a he has a patched up arm and he's ready to shoot. <laughs> yeah. Bobby. And then, then we also. Yeah. Wait, what were you going to say? And then the, the police scanner. A little insight to a little insight to the criminal underworld that Dave Lynch, I think, captures pretty good in the Twin Peaks. Where it's uh, he just sounds like a I think aftermarket police scanner setup or radio ham radio maybe but on the frequency of the sheriff station and yeah just that, that little details like always like oh wait bad guys can be literally listening in to what the cops are doing so they're always a step ahead <laughs> that's not reassuring it's like and they're completely unaware of it too yeah and then he quickly makes a beeline for the sheriff department once yeah, he hears we, once he hears about Waldo. Yeah, they need to pick up bird seed. Well, I, also, Aaron. I also looked into what kind of bird Waldo is, and Waldo is called well, I believe it's a mina bird, which is a a bird from the Starling family. And yeah, just I I, I found like Waldo's role in the series to just be so tragic. Um, it, it makes me think of like, like I have a hard time, uh, you know, following like pet uh, or like animal oriented uh, forms of like content because I just see whenever I see the suffering of an animal, it kills me inside like a little bit. Um, and like Waldo just seems like such a sweet soul. Um, and then for Leo to just, you know, realize the grave, the graveness of the situation of him being, you know, potentially found out and just immediately suppressing the desire to kill the person that his wife is having an affair with in order to preserve himself is just, I, it's, it seems like it's very telling of, or it's even more reassuring of like his inherent narcissism and sociopathic like tendencies. He gotta save himself. Mm -hmm. And I, I really found myself enjoying Shelley's role in this episode. Uh, we get so much insight into her as a character and finally like standing up for herself. And even later on where she's back at the diner, between her and Hank, you could tell that she's sort of not buying into this facade that Hank is putting on. 
And I feel like she's done so much growing in these past, you know, in this past season, um, as opposed to, you know, just being like a, like this sort of a caricature of like a 50s diner or a 50s like waitress and Bobby being like the James Dean type. And I don't know, it like to me, it, it shows that she's at least growing a little bit, whereas Bobby is sort of going down a, a darker path still. In a little growth. And it's time for everyone's favorite characters oh. and scenes. <laughs> I feel like we should have a segment for this, like where we like take a break and then like we add like a little like stinger for the for the James and Donna storyline and Maddie and Maddie, of course. Like Scooby <laughs> soundtrack. Yeah, right. <laughs> because I, I once again, like I, I feel like I've said this before. To me, this is the weakest storyline. Um, but I also feel like it's it's somewhat necessary. Like I can see the significance of it because it takes us out of sort of the lawful approach of uh, solving this case versus the privileged one or sort of the more darker one, which is Audrey's, um, you know, having much more resources at hand. Uh, and it sort of brings us into this very suburban uh, investigation. You know, doing what, what you can with the clues that have been given, you know, finding the tape inside of a hidden bedpost of your friend, you know, compared to infiltrating your father's department store to go to this, you know, this this black market casino where, like, potential sex, sex trafficking is going on, like... <laughs> how, how did you how did you feel about this scene with, with James? And Donna and Maddie. It's the classic. It's necessary. I do really like. Because uh, I know how everything happens. From seeing season three and two. But I do. I, I do like the uh, start of. Uh, like the concept of everyone's paths, like meeting at the apex. I do like the possibility of that happening. Mm -hmm. from James and Donna's perspective of like with how much time well not time but it would make sense for them to be like at the crux of solving the murder not literally like in real life but like uh, for catharsis and all that like I would want them to like have one of the clues that helps Cooper and the everyone solve the final mystery so like I feel, yeah, they're doing like their own investigation, completely different leads, but they're on the same path. It feels like, and I felt like, I feel like I'd like this a lot more. These scenes and all the stuff, if I knew it led to something directly, instead of what it kind of plays out later on. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. No. That yeah. makes that makes absolute sense. Um, especially because it. What they're doing right now is they're investigating a suspect that Cooper and Truman have sort of ruled out in their own investigation. And they're doing so purely because they, they have this clue 
where it's Laura voicing these very inner thoughts to Jacoby because it was her psychologist. And it's sort of like this nefarious, like, I don't know, it, it feels grotesque in a way. The way that Laura is like venting these feelings to Jacoby, almost like a, a form for him to, you know, get off to it or something like that. It, it feels very perverse in that way. Um, and I can absolutely see why they would want to, you know, find the missing tape, you know, that uh, Laura, you know, gave to Jacoby. Um, and this sort of this episode feels like it was mainly. I feel like that was definitely one of the major uh, plot points that this episode was trying to push through, or the narrative, I should say, that is trying to continue on. Uh, because we also end with that whole plan uh, taking, or, you know, coming to fruition of them, you know, infiltrating Jacoby's apartment. Um, it's sort of that narrative followed with Audrey's and then, of course, the, you know, intersecting with One-Eyed Jacks that uh, Cooper and Ed go and visit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally feel the, the One-Eyed, or Audrey's, Audrey's storyline in this episode is a bit it, it's it's interesting to me but it's not as it's not as powerful as like some of the previous episodes have been to me uh for instance you know in the last episode i i believe it was the last episode where um leland shows up at the great northern and then we see that great moment of audrey you know seeing how the community sort of embraces this this madman while failing to give him the help that he like needs to me that is far more revealing of audrey as a character rather than what she's doing now by trying to continue this investigation um to aid cooper like to me i like how do you feel about about audrey doing this investigation that's another one where audrey's on like a a noir femme fatale pastiche investigation again like it feels like they should all come together at the end and like like uh like dawn and them find something that somehow leads to something that audrey has found that connects to something that the sheriff truman and cooper need to reveal the final you know, culprit or whatever, or all the other stuff that's happening. So I, I do like, I like hers, but it does feel, hers feels more self-aware. I'm trying to think of how, without spoiling it too much directly. Like she feels like a spoiled kid who just knows, only gets her way. But with like her previous scene of vulnerability towards Cooper and all the other stuff like she's she's getting upset with some of the stuff she's finding uh, you know it's, it's taking its toll on her more than we see like the James and Donna crew and uh, 
you feel like there's going to be a negative negative repercussions the more deep she wades in or uh, the Donna and James crew it feels like there's going to be repercussions but it feels like it's a different stake the stakes are less high like Dr. Jacoby's not as intimidating as like a across the border drug running operation mm-hmm yeah, that's that's a really good way of uh, putting it, you know, like this. Just Audrey having like this accessibility, taking on like this, this noir investigation. It, it reminds me of a uh, blue velvet in a way where Jeffrey comes from, you know, a privileged family. He it seems like it's it's like upper or maybe even like just lower middle class now, probably upper. Um and then he sort of takes on this investigation on a whim and becomes transfixed by this darker aspect that he is that he isn't necessarily accustomed to and to me you know seeing these scenes of audrey hiding in the closet of her boss while listening in on this on this uh recruitment that's going on with one of her coworkers it's it's very reminiscent of Blue Velvet to me, um, and it's interesting to see Lynch's uh, evolution in tackling this this kind of narrative, because here we see somebody who is much more confident than Jeffrey is, um, who is much more uh, crafty, as well as it seems intelligent and charismatic as well, but. To me, it feels like Audrey is isn't necessarily aware of those repercussions that you that you were talking about. Whereas Jeffrey was, uh, and to me, I, I think that that firm difference shows just how immature Audrey is at heart. Um, in during this sequence of events, and she sort of like. To me, she always has like this sort of like feline energy where she's like toying with, uh, with the risk, mm-hmm. you know, with the confidence that she can overcome it each and every single time. Like she has nine lives, um, and it'll it'll be interesting to talk about um, sort of how this plays out, um, and then to like offshoot that that sort of narrative we have you know, yet another form of Americana imbued in the diner scene where, you know, we get like this very cheesy, uh, superficial discussion or the superficial front that, that, um, that Norma's husband is like putting on. Yeah. I love it. You know, like, yeah, like he's like, Hank's like, oh, you know, the, the rehabilitated convict coming back home, you know, to make things right. Prison industrial complex is actually really cool. <laughs> Trust me, I'm not immediately like a, a more hardened and sharpened criminal from my experience there. I'm not on my way to doing more crimes. <laughs> I am rehabil- rehabilitated. <laughs> and it, it's it's really nefarious how he goes about, you know, uh, steering the conversation to what he really wants to hear about. You know, 
he sort of like puts up this front of like thanking Shelly for all of her hard work and like helping Norma get through those difficult times while he was away in prison. And then we sort of see Norma coming out of the uh, the back and then, you know, choosing to watch from afar, you know, going back in there. And then um, Hank sort of feigns ignorance and being like, she's like, oh, yeah, like, uh, who, who was it that that came by or was it Pete? Was it Pete that helped? And then Shelly's like, what? What are you talking about, Pete? She's like, oh, do you mean like Ed? And he's like, oh, yeah, Ed, that's who it is. You know, trying to not be like as big of a threat as he could be if he just outright asked about Ed. Yeah. Because yeah, she may she may be more inclined that if he asked directly, she may be more inclined to tell Norma. Or if it's like a passive asking, like, oh yeah, yeah, him, yeah. I'm not I'm not looking for information. I've, I've come across people who like ask that way in like my own life where you could tell that they're clearly probing and they always have like a tendency to do that where they sort of throw like a curveball while trying to aim for what it is that they're after and whenever I do pick up on it it's just like so off-putting to me because it's like it's it's a clear form of manipulation and I feel like Hank embodies this so well, especially with like, you know, the t the dirty T-shirt, the dirty apron, sort of like this this meek posture where he's like kind of like hunched over a little bit, you know, like the cowering, like, oh, I did something wrong. I'm just trying to do right. Yeah. I with that said, though, I really enjoy Hank's dynamic that he's bringing to the show since his introduction. Yeah, Hank's cool. It's all right. I like the uh, the standoff scene. It's kind of a good trio going on. Oh, between uh, him, Cooper, and Truman. Yeah, I was like, if you had to pick an antagonist for Truman, I think Hank's a good fit. It's like better than a Leo. Absolutely, he's like a more level-headed Leo. Yeah, I got yeah. Veteran criminal, veteran sheriff. <laughs> Real old West vibes. I wanted to be a standoff or a draw. I even love like their posture. Um, Hank sort of like leaning up against the counter, you know, trying to like tilt his head a little bit, you know, be appear like an honest person while also like dominant in a way. Whereas Truman is just standing completely tall like upright posture, like fully aware of Hank's past and knowing not to trust him. Whereas like Cooper's a little bit more distanced, but also right alongside of Truman, just being more observant. It, it, it's like a really great callback to like how each of them sort of allow the other to take the lead in situations uh, in order to learn from one another. And I, I just love their camaraderie because it's like the peak form of friendship to me. <laughs> Cooper's observing. He's not going to step in. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, the, the body language communication in the scene is real good, too. You're completely right. About the and then, body. of course, and then like once uh, Shelly asks him, like, hey, like, can, you, can I get anything for you, too? Truman's like, nah, we got to go. 
you know, he's on a mission. And then Cooper sort of like takes this moment to step in because he could see how this entire thing's wearing on Harry. He's like, no, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. <laughs> Every day, once a day, give yourself a present. <laughs> this is this is such a perfect example of why this show has longevity, why it resonates, why it's written it's written so well that like I I remember that phrase constantly. Like that's that's like a it could be from like a chicken soup for the soul yeah. page, <laughs> but when it's delivered by the characters in the setting, like an FBI agent telling. A sheriff on their investigation, like slowing down the pace of everything, saying, "Hey, every day, once a day, give yourself a present. You can't plan it; just spontaneously, you know, do something nice for yourself." It's like it's such a philosophy you wouldn't expect from like a conventional character, but it has such a deep uh, re- renaissance resonance, mm-hmm. at least with me. Where like I sometimes I remember this when I'm looking to buy something that's really expensive I've been saving up for a while you get that paralyzed feeling of like okay like, do I really want to spend all the money or a lot of my savings on this or do I want to spend a chunk of my savings on this do I really need it I can wait more I can save more I'll remember this phrase and it's like eh, it's a little present for yourself the world isn't going to end if you spend that money now and as long as you have more money to take care of what you need to literally hurts no one and it in fact is kind of good for you in a way mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely a form of self-care yes it's like other like i this book that i've been reading uh, called how to overcome your childhood it uh talks about the or why sort of breakdowns occur in the human psyche Um, And it says something along the lines of, as humans, we are wildly efficient when it comes to just going, you know, just just doing or just just sort of like tackling day to day events as they come without any sort of like respite or uh, relief to sort of bring us back down to earth. And it's like over time, these events compound in a way that chips away at our uh, construction and you know it, it's it's craving some sort of like reflection of growth or or any it's it's necessitating growth in order to uh, overcome the breakdown and the book says something along the lines of um, a breakdown is unrealized growth uh, occurring regardless of of your state of mind, you know, it's, it's unrealized growth waiting to happen. And when you are faced with the breakdown, that's why it's so vicious. It's because of like, sometimes it's like years that people go, uh, without like addressing the, their, their own needs, like their own spiritual needs or mental or physical needs. Um, and it's sort of like the body and mind, you know, upon you. And being like, no, we're stopping. And it's going to be a very long time for us to get back up to speed. And like, even with what you were saying, like of uh, justifying, like, for instance, like a purchase for yourself, 
or uh, in this case with Trooper, with Trooper, <laughs> I feel like that should be the the uh, the duo Very name nice. between those. Yeah, <laughs> uh, with Cooper and Truman, it's like no, these small little tokens of kindness towards yourself add up. It's like, do not skip these. <laughs> like it's very, like you said, it's a very powerful philosophy, and it and it's even more uh, endearing because it happens in like such in such a spontaneous moment like this. You know, right after a sort of like a an off-putting confrontation between Truman and and Hank, and then we see this this warmth wash over Truman as as Cooper, like you know. Like comedically, like hands him the cup of coffee. He's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, you're right." <laughs> like I love that. Boy, slow down, smell the roses. Mm-hmm. Excellent way, of putting it. And then we we sort of uh, get a similar uh, form of manipulation where Hank was, you know, talking with Shelly, trying to, you know, get information out of her. And you know, without her knowing, Audrey does the same exact thing with her coworker. You know, in a very unsuspecting way of, oh hey, look at this. Oh, yeah, oh you got a horned horse too. Oh, so did I. Uh, oh, by the way, like I, I forgot the the number to Black Rose. Um, can can you give it to me? And then we sort of see like this hesitancy on her coworker's face as she writes down the number. And I just found that to be like an interesting like dynamic, you know, of seeing like a an, like what would what could be considered like an evil character with sort of like uh, the hero, you know, or an underdog of the story committing like the same acts to progress their own narratives. There's a parallel. One bad, one good, kind of. And then we also get another callback to the previous episode, uh, but this time uh, with the reoccurring soap uh, invitation to love, we mm. see a character finally standing up for themselves against this, this very domineering figure and shooting them and feeling a bit of relief afterwards. It's like a split second. Uh, and then it immediately shifts to this very uh, revealing moment between um, Ed and Nadine. And how how do you feel about this scene, Pat? Uh, it really throws a wrench in the uh, the old Ed Norma hype train. Of like you want them to be together real bad, but then there's Nadine. And in my experience, if you if 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 you're talking to someone in real life about the show, and they're like, "Oh, I hated Nadine's character," or "I hate Nadine," uh, Norma and Edge have just gotten together right away. <laughs> Look at that person sideways. <laughs> there's a complexity to Nadine. In my opinion, as well as Ed's uh, self entrapment, and Ed's sin really of uh, you know he's 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 committed himself too much in two places, and he's a man split between both. 
and he, he his life has probably been a constant wave of high and lows between both Nadine and Norma since they probably way back when separated <laughs> it's just it's it's Nadine's a great character uh, she's a fellow ginger I stand with her she has an eye patch which is cool uh, but I it, the, the vulnerability the the you know the how much Ed's been inadvertently hurting her is like apparent. Like it's still like you could still say like Nadine has a selfish streak and she she can work. You can perceive as she's like worked to kinda of entrap Ed with her insecurities of Ed going back to Norma or you know, she still has the high school mindset of she's the girl no one really likes, who's like fawning over the jock everyone loves prom king but like she's like uh, you know she's 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 a sadder character for that it's a tragic thing she can she can be entrapping ed while also being hurt by ed and you know it's a complex thing of like not a good situation and it feels kind of real it feels like that there's a realism to it it's a, it's a sad it's a sad it's a sad thing too it's it's a you know <laughs> I've heard someone like I've heard people write off Nadine. I'm like, oh, I like she's I hate Nadine. Ed and Norma should just be together, and that's one of those things of like, no, <laughs> she's a she's a good character. Ed and Norma should be together, but like he has to resolve this stuff. Best be resolution for Nadine. But she's been hurt by him. And then we see that in the scene where he does comfort her. And yeah, like her, you know, she's so abrasive at the start. And like just lashing out at Ed. But then when she gets the curtains, she's kind of like manic and excited. And now that the patent is being rejected, you know, she's in the dumps. And she's really she's really spilling the beans about like, you know, like, oh, you know, I wasn't like just I'm not just like a one dimensional obsessive character about drapes. You know, it's going to be about the money. It's going to be about our lives and how different they would be after, you know, it'd be it'd be it'd be that we'd achieve the idealized life that I've always wanted and that you want too, right? And it's just this vulnerable moment, this vulnerability. And we see Ed, you know, he cares about Nadine. And he comforts her and it's it's a harsh, you know, it's a back and forth thing Ed goes through, but it's completely realistic. It's not good, but it's like oh, it's I just want Nadine to be happy without Ed. I want Ed and Norma to be happy together. And hopefully we'll see that. <laughs> this is the takeaway. Incredibly well said, Pat. Incredibly yeah. well said. And I, I couldn't agree. Oh, I, I, I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree about that entire perspective on Nadine. And I feel like uh, with a lot of these side characters that don't get nearly as much screen time as, you know, for instance, Cooper, Truman, Audrey, uh, they 
the scenes that they have end up being all the more powerful because they're much more limited at times. And this is one of those scenes. Like I like you were saying about how that callback to um, Nadine talking about how she was just, you know, in the crowd of people watching Ed, you know, fawn over Norma, you know, at the football game. And she just pictured herself as a little brown mouse. It's like she's never really like grown out of that. And with what you were saying about the rejection of the patent, it's like I can only imagine how much uh, work and how much time and tenacity she has had to put into developing this <laughs> this invention to uh, even apply for a patent and to, like muster up the courage for that. That when she's faced with the rejection, it's almost like being at that at that football game again where she is being rejected in a way by not getting the attention that she wants from Ed and by getting the patent she could achieve that I that idealized fantasy like you were saying and potentially no longer be the little brown mouse that she envisions herself as at heart and it's just such a such a beautiful scene. And yeah, the the more and more we're talking about this stuff, I'm like, dang man, this this episode was filled it's with a lot of good stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it feels like a setup episode in a lot of ways. Like there's some setup here, some setup here, sort of with an episode right before the final. But yeah, like that, yeah. That, the Nadine scene, I, I I slept on that. I forgot about that in my recollection of the episode until we were talking about it. It's like, oh yeah, it's like, no, it's a very impactful scene. And then the writing, like the brown mouse line from Nadine, it's like, oh my god, this is uh, such... It's written really well to make the characters endearing. Like, I completely believe she would feel like that and say that. <laughs> it's like, oh, Nadine. It's gonna be okay. You'll be rich. You'll be a successful capital uh, capitalist and then Edward love you <laughs> yeah it's I, I feel like that scene makes the next one hit all the more too um, it, it's a bit of a smaller scene where Truman is visiting the mill and meets up with Josie Josie reveals you know this this conspiracy that she's trying to unravel but when juxtaposed with one of the final scenes from the previous episode where we find out that she is in cahoots with Ben Horn, even seeking to uh, have Catherine be the scapegoat uh, in this situation, it makes it it creates this this very uh, this tragic setup for Truman. Yeah, there's 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 some good parallels. It's been back to forth. Like male, female, male, female. Mm -hmm. Parallels in the, yeah. There's a Hank, Hank and Audrey's, you know, sleuthing, uh, extracting information. And then we get, you know, Ed's, uh, Ed's like uh, passive deception and like reassuring her and comforting her, even though he's in love with Norma. So he's he's kind of 
understandably, but he's still he's still like kind of lying to her. And they embrace at the end. And then we see uh, Truman visiting Josie and Josie's spelling out how she's, you know, innocent and actually uncovering a conspiracy to burn the mill. And uh, Truman is the one deceived now. And he embraces her to reassure her. Oh. It's like, yeah, it's a good little back and forth, back to back scenes of back to back motifs. Yeah, it's like the the pain that we inflict upon others in order to preserve ourselves and our own desires can be very unknowingly damaging to the other party. And it's like just seeing these people blatantly lie and keep up this this veneer, this very thin veneer, and just having the, the other party just like believe it entirely, like with all their heart. Like for instance, with Truman, even though he, I, I feel like he doesn't approve of how Josie has been doing her own investigation, but he's still willing to want to be there to protect her because the way that she's framing it, it's like her livelihood is on the line. When really he's just another pawn in the ultimate game that her and Ben Horn are crafting. And even more deception going on where the following scene, we get the Bookhouse Boys getting ready to stake out One-Eye Jacks, but this time they're going to actually send Cooper and Ed into, you know, get a feel for the place, posing as uh, businessmen. <laughs> and I, I love the names that they go by. Uh, what is it? Oh, it's uh, Bar Fred and Barney, like from mm. the Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> and we also get like a, another heart to heart between Truman and Cooper where Truman's like seeking out Cooper's help and insight on the situation that's going on that uh, Josie revealed to him and Cooper sort of does you know the, the thing that friends do where he's like alright how much do you know about this person like, do you believe her? And then, you know, like, where is she from? Who was she before all this? And then Truman's like, oh, well, what are you, what are you trying to say? Like, what are you getting at? And then Cooper says the truth. That's my job. And then Truman, you know, immediately opens up and says, I love her. And she's in trouble. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the immediate, the real, the real bro follow up line. Like, that's good enough for me. Let's, Let's look, look into, into it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Cooper still has his hesitations, but he's like, he got it's like I, I got to back up. I got to back up Harry on this one, mm -hmm. especially for how quick Harry was to back Cooper up in the very like first few episodes where he's like talking about Tibet and like his uh method that he goes about you know finding out suspects by throwing stones at bottles <laughs> it's like maybe maybe it's time for me to go out on a limb for Truman 
Great line. Great conclusion. <laughs> then, yeah, we see Audrey. Uh, it's one of the things I always miss, especially my first viewing. Where she just misses Cooper, I think. Mm -hmm. And then she tries to call his room to see if he's returned. But yeah, I think she's going to give she's going to give him the information she's got or like say that she's going undercover. Just as like a safety thing. But yeah, she can't get through because he's already gone. He's on his way with the. Bookhouse boys. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, I always miss that myself. Um, it makes me think about had she given the note or the number to Black Rose to Cooper, would things have gone the way that they do in this episode? And uh, it's just so it, it, it brings me a lot of pain to think about. Uh, just in terms of like Audrey as a character and what she has to go through. And I, I like how in the following scene, um, you know, going back to uh, the, the mill storyline, Catherine, it, it comes to her attention that Ben is putting a life insurance policy on her to pay out to Josie. Uh, we, we, you know, there's been so much planting of seeds in terms of deception or uh, watering the seeds, and now it's like we finally see a consequence of the deception that has gone on in at least Catherine's life, where she's sort of being sold out and being used as a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And it, it's... I really like the way that Catherine's character reacts in this situation. Um, She's very quick to keep up the the facade that she has of being this very uh, in-control person. But then the second that the insurance salesman leaves, we sort of see her crumbling a bit. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, she gets some needed vulnerability. Make her empathetic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was, that was a good setup for Catherine's now aware of the, what we're aware of as the audience of uh, the double cross that's going to happen to her. And then we get to see Audrey slip a little note under a certain agent's door. And we get we get a bit of a weird uh, moment in that scene, too. It's, it's just a passing moment where somebody new is checking into the hotel mm -hmm. and we see Audrey passing by him. And yeah, it's just planting a weird seed. It's like not much is ex is expanded upon in terms of that moment. And then we get down to the main event. Oh yeah, most impactful part of the episode. <laughs> so well, suddenly raining. I love that. Big old storm outside. Little Waldo's chilling. Talking a little bit. And I love how um, it cuts to like sort of uh, the, the juxtaposition of all the donuts placed on top of each other in, in Waldo's room. 
And then it's like, finally, like, oh, we get that positivity that the donuts bring to Twin Peaks. You know, everybody's like, everybody's favorite thing, like that and coffee. And then we see Waldo being very lively. You know, he's, he's been fed, no longer dehydrated. He's having a good time. Mm-hmm. Then he starts going back into these speech patterns. Only for shot to ring out and then blood to spill on the donuts and everywhere else and the photo in the frame on the object of safety it's it makes it all the more uncanny you know like the illusion of safety that we find ourselves in every single day only for it to be shattered yeah the haunting slow zooms and the 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 blinds cutting cutting the lines on people's faces as they listen to the tape it's like did waldo talk and then they're playing it and it's uh yeah we get like little vignettes like of uh other people talking to waldo like for instance lucy like hey you know doing like some pet talk with Waldo asking him if he wants some of her orange and that they can share and we see like just Andy welling up already as per his normal trope and I love how like Lucy looks out the blinds too and we could see her tearing up as well it's a very somber and revealing moment for all the characters mm-hmm. almost like the death of a friend and I love the harrowing look on Truman's face as he's just kind of like staring off. Yeah. Cooper looks more sad. Truman looks more ready for action. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the lines are brutal. Hurting me, hurting me. Laura, Laura, hurting me, hurting stop me. It. Don't stop it. Don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> Leo, no. <laughs> Leo, no. Leo, no. <laughs> like whoops now I feel bad then of course we have the the wonderful reoccurring theme like those dark synths followed by like the thunderstorm then it just fades out Mm -hmm. immediate immediate tone shift oh yeah a little commercial break happens and then we're back in Which is good. You can't end the show there. At least a commercial break will help mm-hmm. take the sting away. It still stings. And then, of course, we uh, get a bit more screen time with Blackie during this last uh, portion of the episode. Mm-hmm. She's sort of the the head of One Eye Jack's operations, and you know going along with that theme of a uh, deception that we've been talking about it is sort of at a tension right now like it's 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 there's enough of a counterbalance to create an air of mistrust finally between uh Fred and Barney you know Cooper and Ed posing as these oral surgeons and uh Blackie not necessarily you know just taking it at Putting on the illusion of accepting it while also being very mistrustful or uh, mistrusting towards them. 
I feel like she has a read on Ed immediately. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ed's Ed's like he could be undercover, he could be a cop, he could be whatever. But maybe the friend doesn't know. <laughs> then he sort of saves it by, you know, flirting with Blackie. Turns on the old McGill charm. <laughs> and then we we find ourselves back at the Palmer residence. Oh god, Leland hasn't been present this entire episode up to this moment. We yeah. just see him with the lights off in the thunderstorm. Sitting in the dark. <laughs> just Poor guy. <laughs> Crying. Yeah. It, it's sort of like a, a a small glimpse into what life could have been like uh, if Laura, you know, back when Laura was alive, since Maddie's like a near, you know, uh, like a mirror image of, of Laura, basically. Yeah. She kind of glides through like a ghost down Laura's stairs out the door. We're back to the the most intriguing plot line. Yeah, this, uh, <laughs> this one's pretty. This is one of those scenes that stings where it's like, oh, <laughs> come on, James. Have some <laughs> and Donna just kind of comes out of the car like, oh, hey, I'm here, too. I am dating. Hi. Yeah, it almost looks like he's going in for the kiss and like the embrace. Yeah. <laughs> Not a fun scene for Donna because she gets some empathy right there. And yeah, the face she makes. <laughs> <laughs> Rough, brutal. Then it's immediately offset by the jovial celebration or the continued um uh courting of the uh oh gosh what's the is it the ghostwood estate project yes and jerry's like he's he's a trooper he's he's just continuing on like enjoying every moment of it he's got a new partner uh he's, he's got a new lover he's, he's like picking up on the language and then we see ben just you know wearing wearing a thin Thin veil of patience <laughs> as he's eating ice cream. We get, to, we get to see Ben and Jerry eat ice cream on on camera. It's such like a nice like little, little it, nod. It, yeah, like a little nod of like the brotherly love of how it would have been when they were younger. <laughs> that was just the Ben and Jerry's like reference. Oh yeah, the ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just have, have him have him like it's. It's midnight in his office and he's eating ice cream. Because <laughs> he's still kind of childish. Both of them are. <laughs> right like eating, the from the, eating out of the tub together. <laughs> yeah. And then he immediately sends Jerry off to send all of them up to One-Eyed Jacks, I think. And then he calls Josie to make sure that the plan is still on. That he needs uh, Catherine to be at the mill burned down. And who else? But Hank is present. And Mother Dragon. Sort of, yep. T 
taking it off, getting comfortable. And we see Audrey finally making her way to One-Eyed Jacks after this very prolonged investigation. She meets with Blackie going under this this uh, veil of going by Hester Prynne and is immediately found out by Blackie. And she sort of like makes her case of um, you know being a worthy member of this of this group that you know or this other sect that goes on at One-Eyed Jacks by tying up a cherry stem. I'm like, no, Audrey, you didn't have to go to One Head Jacks. Don't, don't do it. Your, your, your rogue investigation is getting you in trouble. Mm-hmm. And it's like she's already found you out. Now you're doubling down. You're losing all leverage. Then we finally get the face-to-face interaction between Jacques Renault and Cooper, as Jacques swaps out at the dealing table because we get the notion that um, whoever's running the house doesn't like the fact that Cooper keeps winning so they're sending in Jacques to you know mix things up a little bit funny little detail too Ed comes over like did you win anything lost everything it's okay you can take it out of my winnings because Cooper's killing it (laughs) 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 <laughs> and then yeah the blackjack line I love that he gives a little he gives a little bookhouse sign sweep of the eye yeah <laughs> and then we're in yep and we're in Jacoby's apartment still still holding on to the the Hawaiian theme drinking what looks like a tequila sunrise with a massive uh, pineapple slice and cherries and the umbrella while watching Invitation to Love. And then we get the, the plan going on. It goes off without a hitch. Jacoby's immediately, you know, he, he does like a little bit of investigating himself. Um, but he immediately buys into the illusion because he wants it so desperately to be real of Laura being alive, asking him to meet up with her. Yeah. But he's right to grab a gun, because that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It's an unsettling image they film of uh, Maddie holding the newspaper in the park. <laughs> oh, yeah, but then he does some sleuthing of his own. They're trying to send him on a goose chase, I think. Like somewhere completely different. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the gazebo is like partially in the background. And so uh, Jacoby knows to go to the the gazebo and not where they're sending him. And uh, their dumbasses just leave Maddie alone. <laughs> he has Bobby's like lurking in the bushes. Yeah, I'm surprised. I, I was surprised in this moment that Bobby didn't immediately recognize like, hey, that looks like Laura. And I like he, he doesn't, does, huh? I think he does, but he knows it's not her. He's like, "What the hell? What is this weird stuff going on?" And then he follows 
Donna and James back to the apartment. And then immediately stashes what looks like a giant bag of cocaine in James's gas tank. And then we're left with the final frame of, you know, when it was initially showing Maddie from the bushes, it was revealed that Bobby was in the bushes. And what's really unsettling is that Bobby is no longer there, but somebody is still stalking her in the bushes. Yeah, the pers- we see Bobby in the bushes, but it's, it's someone's point of view. It's a perspective shot. <laughs> so someone's watching Bobby and Maddie, and now Bobby's gone. The absence is really felt. I was like, oh, there's two of them. So she was a little more safe now. Or Maddie's dressed up as a girl who's recently murdered in the exact same town one night. Alone at night. And uh, we get a yeah, a shot of someone lurking in the tree line, watching her. And then it just fades, fades to black. Yeah. Gets you hooked in for the next episode, the finale. Mm-hmm. Long awaited finale. Do we get any more insight on who the killer is? Uh, what happens with Maddie? Mm-hmm. What, you know, where, where, where's all this going to end up at? Did you, did you have any closing thoughts on this episode, Pat? Uh, let's see. Uh, right now I'm loving the, uh, the vagueness and the pursuit of the culprit. I sure hope the station or producers don't force the uh, writers to suddenly reveal to us everything. <laughs> I sure hope nothing wacky like that happens. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to the finale. Um, we got a few special things lined up for this finale episode of season one. Uh, after we're, we've wrapped up this season, we might take a little bit of a break before we get back into season two. Uh, we might look into a series that Pat has been wanting to uh, do an episode-by-episode viewing of, which I'm looking forward to. Um, if you've been following us for this far along our journey into Twin Peaks, once again, said it before, I'll say it again. We really appreciate you sticking with us. Uh, we hope that we're bringing some unique perspective to Twin Peaks that isn't usually tread upon and that you're enjoying it. If you happen to have any takes yourself or just want to express anything to us, we highly encourage it. Uh, we have yet to... Uh, hear back from anyone, but when it finally does happen, I guarantee you we will be appreciative and we'll air it on uh, one of the episodes. Um, you can do so at by writing to us at layfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at layfilmpodcast. Uh, you can review us on iTunes. You can follow us on Spotify, uh, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, and yeah, just thank you for, for being with us. We really appreciate it. And that said, we will see you on the finale episode. What happened? We saw Waldo. Oh, jeez. <laughs>